Welcome to the Plus Podcast with Marianne Freiberger. Living, unfortunately, is a dangerous business. Flick through any newspaper on any given day and you'll find a barrage of numbers quantifying the risks associated to anything from alcohol to bacon sandwiches. But behind the simple numbers we see in the papers lies a huge and sophisticated body of statistical research. For this podcast, I went to see some of the people who do this research. I went to the Medical Research Council's Biostatistics Unit in Cambridge, There I spoke to senior statistician Sheila Bird, who's also a visiting professor at Strathclyde University in Scotland. We discussed how the research done at the unit has a direct impact on policy and also talked about some of the controversy surrounding the sometimes biased publication of medical studies as exposed recently in connection with antidepressants. But first, I asked Sheila what kind of work is being done at the biostatistics unit. Broadly, we are concerned with quantitative understanding of major problems in public health. The issues that we tackle range really from cradle to grave. There is a programme of work on, on genetics. There is also considerable interest in dealing with uh, the problems of measurement error, particularly in assessing diet, uh, alcohol consumption. There is work on epidemics, Uh, such as injection-related hepatitis C, variant CJD, dietary consumption of BSE, which led to the human form of mad cow disease, which is called variant CJD. We have a range of statistical work in, in the unit, from methodological innovation, providing computer software that will allow the methods of analysis that have been developed by scientists in the unit to be applicable by others more widely. The unit also gives training in uh, the application of novel statistical methods. The unit is, is concerned with certain major clinical trials that are, that are novel in particular respects. Now, most people are aware that statistics is used for testing drugs or figuring out what percentage of a population carries a certain disease, for example. But your work here goes beyond that, though. You don't just quantify potential problems, but you also try out solutions to them. As an example, there's a study that you're just about to start concerning prisoners with drug addiction. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Certainly. The, in the, the mid-1990s, work in, in this unit quantified for the first time the very high risk of overdose death soon after release from prison for adult uh, prisoners who had a history of heroin injection. Currently, one in 200 adult injectors will be dead from overdose within four weeks of release from prison. That's a very high death rate that is evident not just in Scotland and England and Wales, but internationally. Why is that risk so high, particularly in the first four weeks? Partly that risk comes about because, of course, in prison, although prisoners may have access to heroin, they use much less than they would have done on the outside. And so during the period in jail, they lose tolerance for heroin. And so if on release they revert to using the amounts of heroin that they had been able to tolerate previously, uh, they may accidentally overdose. 
There is also the risk, of course, that release from prison is a, is a matter of celebration, party time, and they overindulge for those reasons as well. So providing prisoners with the information about the risks uh, is, of course, necessary, but it did not prove sufficient. These risks persist. And so an important change happened in 2005 when naloxone, which is the heroin antidote and is a prescription-only medicine, was actually added to the exempt list for medicines that can prescription only medicines that can be used by anyone in an emergency to save life. Now, this is the drug that that paramedical uh, staff in ambulances use to bring round somebody who has overdosed on heroin. And the idea of this trial, which we call N Alive, is that we will randomise prisoners with a history of heroin injection whilst they're in prison and with their consent so that on release they will receive their trial pack and when they open it they will discover whether it contains naloxone or is a control pack. So there will be no ambiguity once the pack is opened whether they have naloxone or not. And what we want them to do is to carry the naloxone with them so that in the event of their they're overdosing and there being somebody else present, that present other will administer the naloxone intramuscularly to, to bring them round. So they will just take it and inject it in their thigh, for example? Exactly. Now we know that naloxone works. We know that it is the heroin antidote. What is under test here is effectiveness of this method of providing the uh, naloxone to recently released prisoners. And associated with the trial is an education video about the trial and about what to do with the naloxone if an individual is present at an overdose. This education will be given to all of the prisoners, whether they choose to be randomised or not, who are attending prisons, the prison's drugs awareness sessions. Now, sadly, uh, injecting drug users are frequently in the hands of the criminal justice system. And so over the course of a, a couple of years, most injecting drug users will have been incarcerated at some time. And so the elegance of this trial is that by this education in the prisons, we will actually reach most of the injecting community. And so they w should know what to do with the naloxone if somebody has it. So overall, 56,000 prisoners are going to take part in the study. That's a very large number. It's a very large number. Uh, but if I can explain why it needs to be so large, 28,000 of those individuals will be randomised to the control group. Now, we expect one in 200 of those controls to die from overdose within four weeks of release from prison. And therefore, we would be expecting in the control group 140 drugs-related deaths within four weeks of release. In the group to whom we give naloxone, and we have to give it to 28,000, we target that we will reduce those deaths from 140 to 98. So a 30% reduction in drugs-related deaths in the first four weeks following release from prison. Why is it only 30% that you're expecting rather than 50 or even 100? Very good question. Uh, in about 80% of, of overdoses, there is somebody else present. So we knew that from, from previous studies. We 
guesstimate, and it is just a guesstimate, that prisoners will, ex-prisoners will remember to keep the naloxone with them about three quarters of the time in the first four weeks. And then we project, we consider that there's a 50-50 chance that that present other will actually have the courage, the ability to administer the naloxone intramuscularly and do so appropriately. And so by the time we multiply together three quarters of 80% and then half of the three quarters, of the, we're down to the 30% effect size. But even so, because naloxone itself is not expensive, even providing uh, naloxone to 28,000 prisoners in order effectively to save 42 lives, this would be a highly cost-effective intervention if indeed it does save 30% of those uh, of those deaths, prevent 30% of those deaths. So if, if it is successful, what policy changes would be made then in prison? This trial, NLive, has been designed uh, to cleave to the prison procedures. So the only thing that the prisons would need to do would be to drop the randomization step, in other words, prescribe it to all of the eligibles. All of the other trial procedures would continue as we have designed them in the trial because they have been designed specifically with prison life in mind. If the trial did demonstrate this effect, the the research team would, in a sense, become prisoner ad advocates for prisoners' health and say, we know this is cost-effective, we've delivered it during the trial in precisely the manner that you can continue to deliver it without the randomization. go to, do it, save these lives, there is no excuse not to. Now most of the work you do here at the Biostatistics Unit should ideally be translated into policy in some shape or form. How easy is it to get your message across to politicians and the public? Is there sometimes resistance to the evidence you have or misunderstanding of it? The notion of evidence-based policymaking is quite widespread. You're certainly correct that it is important uh, to express the outputs of statistical analysis in terms of the real problem and, and what the uncertainty means in terms of, for instance, um, how many people in this country have hepatitis C. So, well, there is a central estimate, but actually there is uncertainty about this and it could be from this lower number up to this higher number. Most people can actually under, understand, I think, the the notion that there is uncertainty about how many are actually infected because clearly not everybody has come forward for a test and so there is bound to be uncertainty. Whether the, the uncertainty is unacceptably wide will again be a matter of almost individual judgment. But if there is a very wide level of uncertainty, then the public will say, well, why do we know so why do we have such a, a poor idea? Surely we should invest in methods, uh, data collection and further analysis to reduce that uncertainty because this is an important question and we need a much more precise answer than you've been able to give us so far. And we say, well, actually, we agree. And that's the point of putting before you not just the central estimate but the uncertainty about that so that you, the public ministers, can actually appreciate the weakness, actually, of the evidence base on which you are resting supposed policy. And actually, rather than making policy, you might be better to make an investment in data collection so that you have a sounder evidence base and then make a decision. 
People are often mistrustful of statistics because they are aware that they can be presented in a misleading way. And we've recently had an example that is bound to make people even more suspicious concerning antidepressants, which turned out to be not quite as effective as we had been told before. Is there a problem with the way the pharmaceutical industry published their results, in that they may publish favourable results and withhold the ones that are not so favourable? It certainly has been possible that the and and of course this problem of a bias in the evidence base, bias in in what is published in in journals, or bias in which results from individual studies you actually publish, is not confined to the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, these problems may apply, for instance, to to government funded studies where publication may be delayed because the results do not coincide with the present uh, direction of policy, and so they would rather not have them aired. So th the problems are not uh, unique to the pharmaceutical industry, but there certainly have been some important instances where studies that have been submitted for drug regulatory purposes when looked at in the round, not all of those have necessarily come through to publication and the more positive of those studies have been published in the literature, whereas the, uh, the complete gamut of the studies gives a more modest impression of the impact of those, of those drugs. Have any changes been made to prevent this from happening? One of the changes that has, uh, has happened is that leading medical journals now will not publish a randomised controlled trial unless uh, it had been pre-registered. So you need to register the fact that so we're about to, to conduct this trial in, uh, in, in prisoners. The trial will be registered, the fact that it is happening, so that people will know that it is happening. And therefore, if it were not published, they would be able to ask, well, why not? What's happened to those data? And this is something that has now been put in place? These are changes that, that are happening. But there are also problems, for example, for the National Institute for Health and Clinical Excellence in trying to estimate effectiveness. Because even although the pharmaceutical industry submits a body of trials in order to get a license, so it has to demonstrate efficacy on a body of trials, there may be trials conducted subsequently which were not funded by the industry which it may even not have complete knowledge of. And again, there is difficulty in making sure that you actually have access to the complete uh, set of evidence. So you're quite right. The, if you have a partial view, that may be a biased view. But on the whole, is it an acceptable system? There will always be improvements that, that, that we can make. I think increasingly we need to move to... Uh, a situation where we fund and run only sufficiently powerful trials. So if you've invested quite a lot of money and effort in designing a trial and running it, it is very unlikely that such a trial will not come to publication. So we should perhaps focus more on trials that have adequate power to answer the question that they set out to answer and be absolutely clear that those trials should be in the public domain. Okay, well, thank you very much. Thank you. And this brings us to the end of this PLUS podcast. For more on statistics, uncertainty and all other areas of mathematics, visit the PLUS website on plus.maths.org. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.